Of course, Venezuela is a country very much in the news. Uh, I suspect here as much as in the United States uh, for all the wrong reasons. Um, and I'm, uh, I've been writing about that, and I was just in Caracas for a couple of months last fall in October and November, and I'd be happy to talk about that um, in Q&A. The subject of what I want to discuss here, though, um, concerns for the moment in time in Venezuela when quite the opposite was the story, insofar as Venezuela was very much out of the public eye for reasons that I'll mention. Um, and the silence that occurred to that moment, and to Venezuela in particular, in powerful ways, um, both helps us understand what happened in the context of Chavez's, Chavez's rise to power, and in the context of his subsequent presidency, and what is going on now. So really, this is the story of a, of a, uh, of a history that is less um, uh, hidden and then um, overlooked, and how looking through that history can help us better understand where Venezuela is today. Um, and so, yes, the, the book that Pablo Canley mentioned is called Barrio Rising, um, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. And the central question that the book tackles is quite a, uh, a simple one, and I don't say that uh, just a, a false modesty, I'll explain why in a moment. The question is this, how did Venezuelans, Venezolanos that pie, everyday Venezuelans, understand democracy in its formative years, and how did those understandings come to shape both the rise of Hugo Chavez and the contours of politics both during and now after his presidency? Now that, is question, that this question would need raising in the first place reveals a major disconnect in the study of Venezuelan contemporary history and politics and society that in fact continues to impoverish analyses of the country generating deep on what to my mind are, and I've written about dangerous conceptual gaps about what democracy is and what it should be, not only in Venezuela, but in the region more broadly. And it's a disconnect between basically a recent past of exceptional stability and a present of exceptional chaos. There's this tremendous gulf that seems to um, pose countervailing forces and countervailing histories. Um, and each one of these is informed by what I imagine and what I argue is a narrow conceptual methodological approach that focuses primarily on the institutions of government, on the conduct of leaders, or on the performance of the economy, primarily um, analyzed through quantitative means. Largely absent in this account, both then and now, are approaches to Venezuelan politics that look beyond institutions, leaders, and structures and focus instead on the messy workings of everyday life. And that is what the centerpiece of the book and really where I think our attention should be focused to better understand Venezuela. So of course today, and for the last 15 years and more, Venezuela has stood at the center of debates about democracy in Latin America, both its promise and its shortcomings in a region where severe social and economic, uh, social and economic inequality has long undermined the exercise of civil and political rights. But this attention, reflected in a cottage industry of books and articles and journalism and policy papers about Venezuela's political trajectory under Chavez and now under Nicolás Maduro, stands rather at odds with a preceding roughly 40 years in which Venezuela figured only exceptionally in most literature and analysis of Latin America. And I mean exceptionally here in two senses. First, only rarely did Venezuela appear in the academic literature and in popular press, generating little interest and fewer study. And the second meaning, um, which led to this first, is because Venezuela seemed to stand as an exception to the rest of the region. 
where dictatorship and civil war reign in most of the continent, Venezuela seemed by contrast to function stably and democratically with strong political parties that alternated in power, with universal periodic elections that reflected the will of the electorate, and with low levels of social conflict that were underwritten by a skillful and consensual distribution of oil rights. And yet, by the late 1980s and 1990s, exceptionalist readings of Venezuela collapsed almost as spectacularly as they had emerged, this time under the weight of massive deadly protests, presidential impeachments, attempted coups, banking crises, and eventually the defeat of a two-party system by Chavez's uh, Bolivarian Revolution. And yet, surprisingly, this seeming sudden turn of events failed to result in a revisiting of the assumptions um, uh, assumptions about the study of Venezuelan politics and society, assumptions that had given rise to this exceptionalist myth. Now, remarkably, the same features that had seemingly accounted for Venezuela's once exceptional stability were the causes of its crisis. So oil leaders and institutions had once accounted for its exceptional stability, and now those were the reasons for its exceptional chaos. Hence, the central question, again, of my book, seeks, as I mentioned before, less a hidden than, in fact, a much too visible and yet overlooked um, history of popular politics um, that I uh, argue is at the heart of both narratives, of both stability and crisis, even as it has long remained assumed and derived rather than um, independently examined. Um, and so I ask these questions here um, in the 23 de Nero neighborhood, or 23 for short. In key ways, El 23 is an ideal prism through which to refract the development not just of popular politics in Venezuela, but more broadly of contemporary Venezuelan history itself. An amalgam of uh, high rises and squatter settlements that had long since been consolidated into the urban landscape, it reflects the massive and often chaotic urban explosion Venezuela, as indeed many other countries in Latin America, underwent in the second half of the 20th century, resulting, as we see, in dramatic juxtapositions of uneven urban growth, planning, and development. Its residents, too, comprise a broad spectrum of social and economic standing that is characteristic of such heterogeneous urban popular sectors, ranging from extreme poverty to manual laborers and service sector employees to middle-class professionals all coexisting in this one space. And I just want to draw your attention to this corner here of uh, Block 7. The various buildings are um, numerated, and that's how they're known, because it's going to be a reference point through which I'm going to take you through the various episodes that help us to explain and parse out this history, and that is Block 7. Um, now we're uh, basically in the uh, rooftop of Block 7, where we just were. Right, so here's where we were, now we're looking um, west, or east. El 23 also stands at the symbolic heart of the capital, Caracas, and therefore of the nation. It overlooks literally the presidential palace, Congress, and what until the 1980s was the Ministry of Defense, granting it proximity to the centers of state power that throughout its history accorded its residents both significant leverage and at times lethal peril. Its symbolic centrality was heightened further still by the burden and the opportunity that rests in its name, 23 de Enero, January 23rd, which corresponds to the founding date of Venezuelan democracy in 1958. 
So this proximity to Venezuela's democratic project, both spatial and symbolic, would generate a contradictory relationship with the state while also exalting the neighborhood's place in the national imagination. It's capturing, in some sense, the popular sentiment of uh, Venezuela. Most significantly, though, this tense contradictory relationship is reflected in the neighborhood's political identity itself, at least the, the self-identity by, by residents and the projected identity um, by folks outside, which extends well into the present, as I'll talk about. So for instance, considering, uh, consider the following examples. In 2005, a mural <clears throat> outside the Jefatura Civil, that's the highest, um, at the time, the highest civilian authority of the neighborhood, um, in the sector known as Mirador, read 23 de enero, bastion of the revolution. Um, in fact, it was here that amid um, enthusiastic crowds, Chavez came to cast his ballots in the almost yearly elections that marked his publicitary style of politics. Election returns during most of this period located the neighborhood as one of the three major areas of, electro um, of electoral support in Caracas for Chavez and for pro-government candidates. Several of the programs that would become highly popular, misiones or missions, social welfare programs, um, were piloted in the 23 de enero before being rolled out nationwide. And um, in 2012, a monument to honor victims of the Caracaso massacre of 1989, which I'll talk about in more detail in a moment, and which basically ushered in a period of renewed interest in Venezuela as um, the political system began its, uh, uh, its collapse, formally opened in the Sona Eco district of the, of the neighborhood. And so, in important ways, the neighborhood was uh, associated and uh, linked very closely with, with the government, with Chavismo in general. And yet, also in 2005, right around the same time, as uh, local elections were about to take place for positions like Jefatura Civil and mayors, etc., and rejecting a candidate for local office that had been imposed without consultation by Chavez, local activists in the 23 Senado rebelled. And they staged independent local level primary elections, which were the first of its kind in Venezuelan history, and placed their own representative in charge over and above the mayor that had been um, elected with Chavez's blessing. Meanwhile, so-called colectivos, um, or groups that trace their lineage to the 1980s era of armed vigilantism, but now embracing a discourse of radical armed revolution, um, proceeded to attack reformist uh, currents in the government by staging armed confrontations with police and political opponents, in turn leading Chavez, uh, very explicitly and vocally, again and again to distance this government from what he referred to as, quote, anarchic groups in the 23 de enero. And in fact, more recently in December of 2015, as the opposition to Maduro and Chavismo in general swept congressional elections in a stunning electoral defeat for Chavismo, vote results in the 23 de enero showed an opposition victory that suggested dramatic popular rejection in an area that had long since been linked tightly and unproblematically with Chavismo. So this tension and its implications for our understanding of Venezuelan and Latin American politics is exactly what my book tries to uncover. And I draw on period newspapers and electoral returns, municipal police files, city and state government planning documents, declassified U.S. State Department records, and dozens and dozens of oral histories that I carried out while living in a neighborhood between 2004 and 2005. And what I do is I trace 40 years in the development of the 23 de enero, from its founding under military rule in the mid-1950s 
through its tense and contradictory relationship with the liberal democratic period ushered in on its namesake, through new and by some seen as unexpected tensions with the government in the Chavez era and, um, and after. So the book distinguishes between seemingly conflicting strands of oppositional politics that mark area residents' engagement with Venezuela's government, sometimes through quintessential institutions of liberal democracy, like, of course, elections, and at other times through patently extra-institutional and illegal actions like armed conflict, violent street protests, and hijacking state property. Over time, residents came to understand these strands not as antithetical, but as a spectrum of legitimate political engagement marked by an interplay of radical means and liberal ends by which the pursuit of democratic accountability did not preclude but in fact relied on the performance of contentious, illegal, and non-institutional collective action. So this interplay between the institutional and the extra-institutional, between the formal and the informal, between the violent and, um, and, uh, and peaceful uh, expressions of political power are in fact the broad umbrella under which popular democracy in Venezuela emerged. And to some extent, this picture here, I think, really well captures that dynamic, both in its built environment, as I'll talk about later, and what that built environment represents. On the one hand, of course, you see these towering superblock structures that represent a formal, um, sort of the formal uh, uh, visage of state power. And then on the other side, of course, you see um, informal squatter settlements that have risen up much more um, spasmodically over the course of the last 50 years. So much of the way that this democracy that I'm suggesting came to be is visible from the rooftop of Block 7, which is where we're standing now, in the heart of the 23 de Enero. From here, it's easy to see the broad sweep, not just of the Caracas Valley, but of modern Venezuelan history on dramatic display. Now, some of this history is well known. It's in places like the Miraflores Presidential Palace, which is nestled amid lush trees just half a mile northeast. Between the 1930s and the 1960s, Venezuela underwent a dramatic transformation from what was basically a provincial country into an urban nation, and Caracas was the canvas on which elites and popular sectors alike projected their aspirations for this new modern nation. From Miraflores and flush with oil wealth, the dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez who had cemented his rule in a bloodless coup on December 2nd, 1952, and that's not a gratuitous date, I just want you to bracket it for a second, resolved to bring order to the capital and to the nation by raising all squatter settlements known as barrios in Venezuela um, during a period of such frenzied construction that people dubbed it Los Años del Bulldozer, the bulldozer years. In their place, he built modern high-rises to house the city's, uh, mod uh, city's working class, which he intended to modernize. This was the largest public housing project of its kind, not just in Venezuela, but in all of Latin America at the time. In this particular section, which is only one of several large public housing projects that uh, emerged in Venezuela during this period, um, was meant to house 60,000 people and built conspicuously in the heart of Caracas as a symbol of the new Venezuela. In fact, large uh, placards on the top of the very superblocks read Nuevo Ideal Nacional, New National Ideal, um, to project this uh, vision uh, beyond the space itself. And to underscore the point, Perez Jimenez named the neighborhood at the time Dos de Diciembre, 
December 2nd, to commemorate the day when he had cemented his rule. Oral histories that I conducted with original residents of the neighborhood reveal that many remained grateful for the new facilities to which the dictatorship had moved them, oftentimes, in fact, many times forcibly, but they also felt trapped by strict social controls that were, in the end, the dictatorship's major aim for its public housing projects, which intended to order not just space, but the people within those spaces. So for instance, regulations determined where, um, what residents would pay for rent, what they could bring into their new apartments, from furniture to food, what hours they could receive visitors, who could use elevators, for instance, no youth could travel unaccompanied lest their parents be fined. So accordingly, residents came to hold an ambivalent view of their new homes under the political regime that gave them rise. And so on January 23rd of 1958, residents of the 12 de Diciembre flooded Avenida Sucre, which is, which is just at the bottom of the hill from Block 7, and from there walked a short distance to the Miraflores Presidential Palace. And they went to show their support for Perez Jimenez's ouster by a group of civilians and military officers promising a new era of democratic government, one in which their vo uh, votes would count and their voices would be heard. Now, of course, that presents a problem where you have this massive housing project that bears the name as the founding date of the dictatorship that had just been overthrown. So residents renamed their neighborhood 23 de Enero, uh, January 23rd, linking it, therefore, in name and in spirit with the fortunes of an infant democracy that would, as I talked about before, over the next 30 years come to be hailed as exceptional, led by enlightened, socially conscious statesmen who had found ways to channel social tensions into broadly inclusive political parties and state institutions. So like the super blocks themselves, the known history from the roof of Block 7, what you can see, is one of solid institutions and uh, solid structures and formal institutions of grand projects of a well-ordered society with dreams of a strong and stable citizenry at its core. But from the rooftop of Block 7, of course, just as visible yet largely untold, there's another history on display. And this history rises from the spaces between the superblocks and these dense webs of ranchos or improvised homes that occupy what seem like nearly every crevice of the landscape where superblocks didn't already stand by January 23rd of 1958. In fact, while political elites celebrated that moment as quote-unquote a democratic revolution, exactly what direction that democracy would take remained very far from certain. Most immediately, over half of the buildings in the newly renamed 23 de Enero, in fact, lay unassigned on the day of Perez Jimenez's overthrow, which resulted in the frantic occupation and um, squatting of thousands of apartments in two days' time. So between January 23rd and January 24th of 1958, 20,000 people squatted on 3,000 apartments that had been unassigned by the time Perez Jimenez um, uh, was overthrown. And once all those apartments were gone and occupied, the new arrivals who had come in late settled in the spaces between the superblocks, in the time resurrecting the very ranchos that the housing project and its superblocks had intended to eradicate. But more than physical space, what these new arrivals were seizing was the opportunity of a moment of uncertain transition. In the process, 
uh, neighborhood that was designed to homogenize space and social relations was transformed into a socially uh, riven landscape where old and new residents, apartment dwellers, and rancho inhabitants coexisted sometimes uneasily. So for instance, in testimonies that I recount in the book, superblock residents who had relocated under, um, who had been re relocated under Perez Jimenez recall feeling on the one hand disdain for the new slums rising in their midst, even though, of course, they too had come from similar circumstances, but revealing, therefore, an internalization of the dictatorship's logic. And yet, on the other hand, they also expressed a kind of longing over the ranchos that they had built, sometimes over the course of many years, and then been forcibly removed from. In fact, you know, just I go back regularly, and I always talk to folks that, um, you know, informants that I uh, interviewed originally from the book, and even now they say, you know, what I wouldn't have done now to have taken one of those, um, you know, to build the rancho, because now they're four or five stories, and they're sublet, and they become sources of income, right? And they, they're kind of stuck in their um, smaller apartment, so there's a certain kind of nostalgia for that. But the more significant aspect, of course, is that the changing social landscape shaped new needs and identities that over time would generate new forms of mobilization in the context of a political system that was also, of course, very much in gestation, right? Such that the needs of those who had been forcibly relocated under Perez Jimenez were particular, and they primarily related to the question of rents. Were rents going to be lowered in price than those that had been set by the dictatorship unilaterally? Those, of course, who had squatted um, the neighborhood or the uh, apartments, their primary concern was to make sure that they were not evicted. And then those who had squatted on the areas within the, between the superblocks, their immediate concerns were far greater. They needed housing, they needed uh, electricity, water, sewage, et cetera, et cetera. And yet all of these are coexisting in the same, not just physical space, but increasingly symbolic space um, of the 23 de enero. This other history um, also rises in places like uh, Block 55 and 56, which is just west of here. And in fact, Blocks 55 and 56 are difficult to distinguish uh, in the backdrop of tightly packed ranchos that surround them. It's almost like, you know, find the 450 apartment building within this image. It's where's Waldo. Now, these are the last super blocks that were ever built in Venezuela and they were completed just months after Perez Jimenez's ouster. And in January of 1959, just three weeks after triumphantly entering Havana to start the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro came to Caracas and to this place in particular. And he came with a, bit, with a message of gratitude for the example that Venezuelans had said a year earlier on January 23rd. He was the speaker, uh, the honored speaker to commemorate the one year anniversary of Venezuela's democratic revolution. In response, residents renamed their sector, of that sector of the community, Sierra Maestra, which is, of course, the mountain stronghold in Cuba from which Castro had launched his guerrilla campaign. And even now, when you go to El Mititres, if you go to Sierra Maestra, you go to this part of the neighborhood. Of course, that they held this ability and to some extent power to name uh, as uh, to name these sectors of the neighborhood, revealed how residents of the 23 Senero had become well aware of their newfound significance, a key constituency, especially a symbolic constituency, particularly in what was now being billed as an electoral democracy. And in fact, again and again throughout this period, residents flocked to the polls supporting candidates who uh, promised to make urban popular sectors the center of political life in Venezuela. And again and again, these candidates lost. 
The elections instead bring into power presidents who shifted policy and resources decidedly away from Caracas and from the neighborhood. So for instance, Romulo Etancourt, a social democrat who in December of 1958 won the first presidential elections held after the 20, uh, January 23rd coup, famously called the superblocks, quote, costly and anti-human and instructed public housing authorities to direct resources to the countryside where most of Betancourt's uh, provincial base hailed. And indeed, although he won the, nation, uh, the presidency nationwide, Betancourt lost decisively in the capital city, came fourth in um, balloting in Caracas, to a candidate who came in first that was backed by the Communist Party, a phenomenon that led uh, panicked uh, analysts in the US State Department to proclaim, quote, Caracas may be a problem for Betancourt. And I just want to bracket here that this is happening in a moment of uh, conflicting and basically contradictory trajectories in Venezuelan history. On the one hand, you have a tremendous urbanization boom as people are coming, leaving the countryside and coming to cities, Caracas and others in particular. And meanwhile, a government, um, a democratic government that is coming to power, seeking to return to its roots in the countryside. So there becomes a disconnect between the constituencies um, that are becoming ascendant and the political parties of old that are growing increasingly um, uh, distance from those constituencies. But Caracas was indeed a problem for Betancourt, as the US State Department had predicted. Through the 1960s, most residents expressed their discontent about decreasing resources and, um, and attention from the state at the ballot box. But others took up weapons in a bid to see state power outright, in turn influenced and inspired by the Cuban Revolution, which of course, at least ostensibly, had drawn some of its influence rhetorically from the Venezuelan um, uh, ouster of Pérez Jiménez. They took up um, arms and uh, turned the neighborhood into a hotbed of insurgent and counterinsurgent conflict. Now, some of this history is inscribed in places like Block 1, which stands exposed on a hill just north of Block 7. In the 1960s, armed insurgents took to the roof of Block 1 to engage government forces in the streets below, taking advantage of elevated firing positions on the rooftops, of the relative safety of interior stairwells, and of valley winds that helped to scatter propaganda leaflets throughout much of the surrounding area. Also, of course, turning, um, the, turning the, the built environment of the neighborhood into a tactical advantage for insurgents that uh, grew to see the, um, the space through those lenses. And yet, insurgent violence also alienated um, residents at large who, in the end, bore the brunt of state violence, which came not through targeted repression, but in fact generalized repression of the neighborhood. So by 1969, lacking popular support, most guerrillas had demobilized, going on to create leftist parties, or even to join in the existing major parties of the period in a bid to control or at least have a part of the um, oil pie. Now, of course, in the context of a consolidated state, uh, consolidated party system, residents of the 23 Enero again took to the streets to pursue the promise of democratic accountability that had been heralded in 1958, and giving way, therefore, in the 1970s to a period of community organizing around very local demands that had long uh, that had gone ignored for much of the preceding uh, decade of the 1960s, and they did so in places like the Rotary of Block Seven which is a strategic nexus uh, between several neighborhood sectors. This is just an image, a, a picture taken from the rooftop of Block 7 in the corner. And as you can see here, these are just um, three areas 
um, that uh, coincide in this place, but in fact there's three more that come on this side. Right? So it's a, it's a strategic nexus in a neighborhood. And while everyday challenges from rising crime to water shortages to faulty trash collection made life in the 23 de Enero a daily slog, residents repeatedly set up roadblocks at this rotary to demand attention of unresponsive officials. In May of 1969, for instance, just three months after Venezuela celebrated the historic first peaceful transfer of power to an elected opposition candidate, dozens of men, women, and children placed burning tires and debris in the rotary following what had been nearly a week without um, water and without answers from corresponding authorities. Now, at first glance, this um, was a violent action that resembled the conflict that had just passed. But the nature of the demands, again, soliciting very particular concerns and, um, and demands and needs, uh, and of course the makeup of the protesters, um, you know, men, women, and children, marked a major shift in both popular action and state reaction, which came not as military repression, but in fact as a police response, which negotiated um, an agreement with the, with the, with the residents to, um, to return to their homes. There's also another element here, which is the juxtaposition of this street protest um, that is happening just right after the first peaceful handover of power. That's the kind of event that political scientists identify as the moment of political maturity in a society, when an opposition party comes to power peacefully after handover of power. Um, and yet at the same time, as this is happening at the institutional level, at the level of streets, what you have is growing discontent and therefore growing disconnect um, with those very institutions that are now increasingly being held and upheld as legitimate and well-functioning. And yet, even this kind of collective action, contentious collective action and violent protest, in time, proved unable to secure significant attention and improvements from the government in spite of what, by the mid-decade of the 1970s, was an investment spree fueled by petrodollars, coming, of course, in the wake of the oil embargo of 1973. By the 1980s, though, um, as oil prices plummeted and debt obligations incurred in the 1970s oil boom began to mount, severe economic crisis made the problems of area residents much more acute, and, of course, the willingness of government officials to respond even less, um, even less significant. And there are many, many echoes to what is happening today in Venezuela from that period, and I'd be happy to discuss some um, afterwards. In response, though, residents found ways to bring together what were once disparate strands of local organizing during a highly publicized series of hijackings of garbage trucks and other public service vehicles between 1981 and 1982. Now, the protest was fueled by what were over three weeks of mounting trash, which followed the botched privatization of, this, of the Municipal Waste uh, Management Agency, the first such privatization effort in Venezuelan history. Um, and it brought together, this protest brought together what had been dueling strands of local politics. On one hand, radical tactics forged in the fray of unpopular guerrilla war in the 1960s and passed down to a younger generation of activists through a variety of means. And then on the other hand, a community-oriented ethos that marked the 1970s era of organizing around basic needs. 
Now, residents also took advantage of a new discourse and practice of electoral accountability that was propagated by key figures in Venezuela's government as they too understood the dangers of this growing disconnect between elected officials and the populace. And so they tried to reform from within. In particular, the president at the time, Luis Herrera Campins, a social Christian or Christian Democrat, um, had long since talked about uh, 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 democratizing democracy by uh, creating a more participatory style of democracy. And in fact, if you think about, and I've written about this, some of the historical underpinnings of Chavez's participatory democracy discourse, it actually has its roots in this period. Um, and he came to the neighborhood and negotiated personally the release of the trucks from residents who held them over a month's time, right? Granting them, therefore, significant amount of legitimacy that they otherwise would not have had. In the process, the hijackings redefined the boundaries of legitimate protest and in the process helped to recalibrate popular expectations of democratic citizenship as an interplay of street action and the vote simultaneously as one shared spectrum. Now, in other parts of the neighborhood, however, residents took matters into their own hands in other ways. In barrios, for instance, like Los Arbolitos, just west of Block 7, self-defense brigades, um, such as the one known as La Piedrita or the Pebble, organized to fight a raging drug trade while at the same time raising political awareness among neighbors through murals and street art. Now, some of these um, murals and street art are easily spotted from the roof of Block 7. Um, and many of the people, that origin, the, the original um, founders of La Piedrita actually came from the urban guerrilla period of conflict. But the economic crisis during this time deepened. Excuse me. Throughout the 1980s, authorities experimented with privatization in areas that most affected urban popular sectors, public services, public housing, and local governance. Now, in each of these areas, uh, efforts at quote-unquote unloading former public ventures by calling upon either financial exigency, you know, we can't afford it, or personal responsibility, citizens themselves should take over control, were met with significant operational problems, which in turn, and importantly, shape what popular sectors would come to expect from neoliberal reform. In the 23 Enero, for instance, the government moved to turn over um, ownership of the superblocks to residents themselves, transforming the buildings from public housing to hastily arranged condominiums. Now, for some in the neighborhood, it meant an opportunity, finally, to take control over their own affairs, even if it came with significant challenges. And as many uh, local leaders admitted to me, um, organizing to make uh, demands of the government was far different and to some extent far easier than it was to make demands of your neighbors. Um, and yet for others, for many, it was a highly and thinly veiled government effort to finally rid itself of the costs, both financial and otherwise, of a neighborhood that had long proven a thorn at its side. And just a, as a side note here, the costs of upkeep were in fact astronomical. If you think about the fact that again, half of the neighborhood um, never actually paid a cent in rent, right? And so the rents were primarily coming from those who had been originally um, allocated uh, housing during the Perez Jimenez years. So by the time of the 1980s, and not just as a result of the Veintitresanero, uh, but other public housing ventures, the public housing authority in Venezuela owed international lenders uh, half a billion dollars. And so it was tremendously um, uh, insolvent. Then in 1989, the mounting pressures of a democratic government that had grown alienated from its citizens came to a head. 
In late February of that year, a newly elected president went back on promises that he had made on the campaign trail and implemented a severe austerity program to avert economic collapse. Uh, just to give you a small sense of things. So just today, um, the uh, foreign reserves of Venezuela were just over $10 billion. Um, they were at a high of $40 billion in 2008 in the height of the oil boom. Um, when uh, Carlos Andres Perez comes to power, the foreign reserves were at $300 million. Okay? So basically, the country itself was also insolvent. Um, from the barrios of Caracas, places like the 23 Enero, people descended onto the streets to protest, as indeed they long had. And yet, the government responded by unleashing the military to restore order following a plan that had first been devised in the 1960s in places like the 23 Enero, quote, to seek and destroy urban guerrillas. So the entire tactical repertoire state of the state in response was as a political crisis rather than as a social and economic one. In a matter of days, at least 300 and as many as 1,000 people they massacred, many of them later found in mass graves. And of course, because of its strategic location and its previous history as a hotbed of insurgent um, uh, guerrilla insurgency, the 23 de Enero, even though it was not actually a major site of protest, was an especially intense site of violence from army units. In Block 22, for instance, which overlooks Avenida Sucre, um, just uh, west of Block 7, residents endured such intense gunfire from troops stationed below that today it's still easy to make the spray of bullets in its walls. I don't know if you can see it here, but this is an image from 1989, and below is an image taken from the same vantage point in 2014. You can still sort of see the spray of bullets behind what is a sort of makeshift uh, paint job right? um, that has uh, fallen over the years. Drawing on both world history accounts and on previously untapped um, documents from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which in 1999 ruled that Venezuela's government had perpetrated a massacre, what I do in the book is redefine this moment not as a, mass as a massacre not just of people, but of expectations as state officials expressed surprise um, at the response of urban popular sectors that they could no longer claim to understand, these sectors too were shocked by the response of a state that they could no longer plausibly view as representative. In the vacuum, in the gulf between these two spaces, they would seek other political opportunities for fulfilling the promise of democracy, again, as they had come to understand it, as a fluid, dynamic spectrum between the formal and the informal. So while the scars of Block 22 are a reminder of how the promise of democracy that was ushered in on January 23, 1958 came to die, the Museo Militar, the military museum, which again up until 1981 was the defense ministry, the site of the defense ministry, just accentuating even more the strategic centrality of this neighborhood, um, is a reminder of, the new, of a new set of promises that would rise in its wake. A turn-of-the-century castle that's so close to the east of Block 7 that a strong arm might reach it with a stone, this is the place from where, in the pre-dawn hours of February 4th of 1992, troops loyal to Lieutenant Colonel Hugo Chavez staged a coup against what by then had become a broadly unpopular political system. 
Now, the coup failed, but the discontent that it revealed and the expectations for far-reaching changes that it unleashed eventually helped Chavez win Venezuela's presidency in 1998 under a banner of Bolivarian revolution that in principle promised to give greater uh, voice and political power to the very same popular sectors that had found themselves increasingly sidelined from the political project founded on January 23rd of 1958. People like place, from places like the 23 Enero. Now today, this is where Chavez, who of course died in office in 2013, lies entombed in the bowels of the Museo, in the heart of the 23 Enero, a stone's throw away from Block 7. But how well did Hugo Chavez interpret popular understandings of democracy such as I have described them? As the Bolivarian project sought to consolidate what Chavez himself characterized as, quote, a new historical phase in Venezuela, it came to rely on an historical genealogy that rested on his rise as the redeemer of a long-suffering poor. And yet, the long history of popular mobilization in the 23 Enero powerfully suggests otherwise. What it shows is that the struggles of popular sectors to consolidate the promises of effective government <coughs> unleashed early on a contest over competing visions of democracy, at once simultaneously radical and liberal. Under Chavismo, these currents remain vibrant, forced on the one hand to subordinate their understandings of democracy to a revolutionary project that indeed granted them greater say and visibility, but in the context of an increasingly highly vertical structure, 23 Enero residents again emerge as centers of conflicting support and dissent for the Bolivarian Revolution's underlying promises of greater participation. So in ways literal and figurative, the 23 Enero and its residents stand at the center of social and political life in Venezuela, as they have, in fact, since the neighborhood's founding nearly 60 years ago, their evolution mirroring that of the nation as a whole. But what larger meanings can we derive from the local history of the 23 Enero? At its core, what the neighborhood's history sets in relief is a blend of institutional and non-institutional mobilization that is not an exceptional, but rather an essential element of democratic life characteristic of popular sector, urban popular sectors. In turn, this strategic interplay of non-institutional and institutional tools rises from long-standing processes of uneven urbanization, where the boundaries between formal and informal housing, labor, and social life, like the boundaries between formal institutions and informal political practices, are fluid as a matter of course. And yet, the case of the 23 Enero is unusual. Unlike most examples examined, by, examples examined by scholarship and urban informality, people like Bertie Fisher, Javier Oyedo, um, Partha Chatterjee, um, and Mac Davis, and others, this neighborhood is not peripheral. To the contrary, the neighborhood and its residents stood at the spatial and symbolic heart of the nation. Their centrality helped to turn local issues into national issues. Uh, through spectacular displays of constituent power, whether hijacking state vehicles, engaging in guerrilla war, or taking to the polls en masse. Every event was immediately translated into the will of the, popular, um, of the populace. In this sense, it was not physical and political exclusion that informed what the anthropologist James Holston has called, quote, insurgent forms of citizenship in Venezuela. Instead, it was a process of signifying and re-signifying an already highly charged urban space during times of political and economic transition that created both fissures and opportunities for popular expressions of democracy. 
and that the neighborhood became an amalgam of formal and informal housing, of barrios and high-rises, of renters and squatters, ensured that, like the physical environment itself, this process was in constant flux, never fully gestating, but instead existing in a liminal state that over time helped to forge an expansive definition of democracy that, helped, that upheld the interplay of formal electoral politics with contentious, often illegal protest as a legitimate form of everyday political practice. Now, let me end with another more recent example that perhaps you may be more familiar with and that I also discuss in the book. Folks know this? What? Okay, yes, the Torre de so in September of 2007, a group of men and women in search of a place to live broke through the ground floor fence of a half-finished 45-story skyscraper in, in the heart of Caracas, Caracas's financial district and claimed it as their own. In 1994, after a financial meltdown led, um, left, Caracas, left Venezuela's economy in shambles, construction had halted on um, banker David Berlinburg's dream of a site that would, quote, uh, be the answer to Venezuela, Venezuela's answer to Wall Street. So it lay abandoned for years, um, a rusting shell of a building that memorialized an era of pri reckless private spending that helped push, uh, push mil millions of people into poverty. And then, of course, Venezuela's political landscape shifted. Hugo Chavez uh, swept into the presidency in 1999, promising to usher a revolution where the country's poor would take center stage, eventually calling it 21st century socialism. But after years of waiting for long-promised housing, hundreds of families resolved to make real Chavez's claims of a future in which they held power, breaking into and then squatting in Berlinburg's abandoned skyscraper, and in the process giving rise to what some have called the world's tallest slum. Although for most, it's simply known as La Torre de David, Tower of David. Over the next seven years, the story of a skyscraper built to symbolize an era of capitalist ambition, then abandoned, then forcibly occupied by citizens at large in the midst of a socialist revolution, captivated journalists, architects, and academics, and their accounts varied wildly. For some, the tower was the last resort for the desperate, hated by society, a conundrum for the government that didn't know what to do with it, they eventually evicted everyone. Those who managed an existence in its bowels did so lacking running water, sewage, elevators, or walls. Unsupervised children fell to the deaths by accident, wayward adults by design. Others saw it as a den of drugs, rapes, and violence, quote, a byword for everything that is wrong with Venezuela, end quote. That was John Lee Anderson in The New Yorker. The US television series Homeland, I don't know if any of you watch it, even featured a fictional representation of the tower shot in Puerto Rico. Um, uh, in its storyline, billing it as a lawless haven for murderers and terrorists where police dare not enter. But when stripped of hyperbole and dramatic license for others, including its residents, the tower stood not for violence, but for popular ingenuity and even hope, precarious and sometimes dangerous to be sure, but also stable and removed from the most extreme perils of poverty. To the hundreds of homes that they fashioned inside the building were also added shops, beauty salons, internet cafes, sports facilities, and churches, all governed by what um, uh, some anthropologists who've done work there have called a set of written rules established by the community. Architects, for instance, at the firm Urban Think Tank upheld, quote, the settlement as a font of lessons on how to adapt broken cities to the millions who flocked them, end quote. 
exhibiting designs, photographs, and even a documentary film about the tower to much acclaim at the 13th International Architecture, uh, Architecture Biennale in Venice in 2012. And yet, for all the attention that the tower and its residents mustered in print or film or web traffic, its striking parallels to the 23 Enero were entirely unremarked. Unsurprisingly unremarked, I would add. The fact is that Venezuela's past remains caught in what Fernando Coronil has called, quote, collective amnesia that envelops a dominant memorialization of Venezuela's history, end quote. Induced by illusions of limitless wealth fueled by oil booms, successive governments over the last 100 years in Venezuela, whether dictatorial or socialist, democratic or capitalist, modernist or provincial, have taken to, quote, manufacturing collective fantasies of progress in which fast state spending casts its spell over audience and performers alike. As a magnanimous sorcerer, continues Coronil, the state seizes its subjects by inducing a condition of, or state of being receptive to its illusions, a magical state. In this sense, for political elite, survival relies on perpetuating an ever more dazzling vision of the future with ever more spectacular displays of power in the present. But of course, as there are oil booms, there are oil busts, ensuring that over time, the breach between future and present will expand unsustainably reaping the benefits of a spectacular present, unable to keep pace with a magical future, therefore, of course, requires eliminating memories of a well-trod past, lest that memory expose the precariousness of a magical future. The past in this context has to be eliminated. At the same time, and much has happened with the 23 Enero, the Torre David and the wildly contradictory interpretations that it spawned call attention to another key but less familiar feature of Venezuela's political nature. Absent history, hysteria reigns. Haunted by failures past, yet unable to contend with them, um, so as so to maintain the plausible illusion of a magical future, the precarious present becomes a site of urgent but unstated anticipation, of immediate gratification or punishment. Writes Venezuelan novelist Federico Vegas, quote, Historian says hysteria is like a platform where everything that happens to us bounces back, preventing what we live through from becoming experience. This means we're constantly on the surface, never reaching deeper, never gazing inward, unable to link our past to the history of man on earth, end quote. Unmoored from any sense of history that might offer lessons or comfort in moments of crisis, anxieties are met not with nuance, but with hyperbole. At hand is always either utopia or apocalypse, nothing in between. We therefore have in Venezuela, continues Vegas, a hysterical country subject to infernal repetition. Today, from the rooftops of the 23 de Enero, it is easy to spot the Tower of David just over a mile away due west. It's a short distance as the crow flies, but embedded in this short space is a history marked more by continuities than by ruptures, nevertheless masked, by dis masked and distorted by layers of amnesia and hysteria. What the Tower of David represents is a small-scale version of what the men and women who occupied thousands of apartments here 50 years before undertook in search of better lives for themselves and for their families, drawing on a revolutionary discourse that held the promise of greater participation and of a popular understanding of democracy built on decades of counterpoint between street protest and electoral politics. That, in short, is the essence of democracy in Venezuela, messy, dynamic, enduring, and contradictory, but as it has long been in El 23.
Thank you.